Monday, Monday afternoon, theologians. Recording in progress. So we're on the record, which is what we can say about our local weather guys. About three folks with interest in the weather decided they would put together their own little weather service for the local community. And for the weekend, they said, now, starting about midnight on Saturday, we're going to get between 10 and 12 inches. On my rail, when we were done, we had between 10 and 12 inches of this nice, fluffy, white powder snow that I'm sure made the skiers happy on Monday morning. I'm sure it did. When I ski in powder, I usually ski on my face. <laughs> if I did ski, I'm sure that's how I would ski as well. Well, we had the opposite in our side of the country, we actually had some folks that were kind of making it sound like this week was going to really ramp up and it was kind of going to be snow apocalypse. Boom, boom, boom. This morning, they were all going, nope, missed it. <laughs> because there was no snow on the ground. Everything was just wet. We're going to get more rain today, but I don't think we're going to have any snow on the ground at all, which means that you got a true prediction. We got a really false prediction which is kind of a good thing for us to recognize because there's a lot of people in this country trying to give accurate predictions about specifics related to end times scenarios. Yeah, and it's interesting in my YouTube feed, I get all these different things coming up. You know, you watch one and you get 30 more that are kind of similar. And it's, this must happen before the second coming or, you know, all of these things have come to pass except this before the rapture. And Oh, golly, uh, the Temple Mount is not where you thought it would be. So, you know, they can start building right now uh, the third temple. And it's just on and on and on. Yeah. And somehow these people think they have credibility because they made a YouTube video. That's why both you and I have been fully in agreement <laughs> that we're trying to steer people away from trying to listen to those kinds of voices that say specifically, this is that nation, this is that leader, these are the times, and we know on this date that, you know, we need to avoid that because apocalyptic literature is not meant to be interpreted that way. It's supposed to light a fire in us to help us understand that there will be things happening and they will become much more readily recognized after they have occurred than before they have occurred. That's the nature of prophetic literature in general, and especially apocalyptic literature. Also, it's supposed to light a fire in us to live for Christ while the times are heating up and getting bad, knowing that if any of the scenarios work out right, and if like the pre-trib folks are correct, and if Jesus comes back and we are taken back up to be with him, then we're going to avoid a lot of that stuff. But if we're going to be left for the first half of the tribulation, whatever that looks like, we're going to need to be prepared to continue to live our lives as testimonies to the fact that God provided the way for us to be in heaven with him forever when all this mess on earth goes away, because he's going to finally bring his rule and reign to a new heaven and a new earth. So we're trying to suggest that this has more to do with setting us up emotionally and spiritually to live in a difficult world, to live for Christ and to point people to him. And Jesus is the reason why we do all this stuff. And he's the main character. So that's what we're about. Now, we're not going to set up any failed predictions. 
we're trying to show you the real reason why we have the books of Daniel and Revelation. And it's not to predict specific individuals' names and times on a calendar. Yeah, I like the way you've said it so many times, where we want to live with an urgency about what's happening in the world as a witness for Christ, because even though we see so many turning away and so many more who will turn away as we read the the scriptures, as you said, in Daniel and in Revelation, and yet we also know that there's going to be a large harvest either right before and or during the tribulation because those who have missed the boat are going to say, oh, I missed the boat. I, I wonder if I have a chance. And they're going to turn to Christ at some point because they know they need the Savior. Exactly. And that's why you, fellow theologians, are a part of living in a way that if we're presenting really faithful, obedient witnesses to other people around us, then if these things do come true in our lifetimes, and they certainly could, then the people that you have helped influence by your winsome, Christ-filled, spirit-filled behavior and your love for people and your unashamed stand to be Christ's person, you may be part of the reason that some people wind up in heaven. And that's what we want. We want that more than anything. So that's why we presented all these different characters that are shown in the books of Daniel, Revelation, and occasionally Ezekiel, not so that we can predict specifics but so that we can help light a fire in all of us to live for Christ in a world that's difficult. This time, we're going to talk about the last participant. There are three of them. We've talked about them in uh, different ways in different episodes, but we're going to look at the dragon and the two beasts. Yes, the dragon and the two beasts. Some of the people in my kids' world used to play Dungeons and Dragons. They love the fantasy world, and some of them love C.S. Lewis, and they love J.R.R. Tolkien. You know, they just love all that whole fantasy kind of world. Well, they ought to really get into Revelation and Daniel, because there's a lot of this allegorical, poetic imagery that's supposed to bring things to mind, but without being specific. So in Revelation 13, if we're going to look at these, this last couple of folks, the dragon and the two beasts, Revelation 13, John sees a nightmarish vision of a dragon and two beasts. The first beast comes out of the sea and receives power from the dragon or Satan. And this beast is described like a true monstrosity. It had 10 horns, seven heads, 10 crowns on its horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw, says John, resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. Now, we see that in Revelation 13. Daniel's vision, back in the Old Testament, is similar in many ways to John's, Daniel 7. Looking at the similarities and differences in these two different beasts can become very helpful. And when we look at Revelation, we know that the term beast refers to two related entities. As you just mentioned, sometimes it refers to the end times empire, thus the seven heads, the ten horns. And that would indicate that the beast will be a coalition of nations that rises to power, and they will be there to subdue the earth under Satan's control. And yet later on, when we see the term the beast, it is a picture of an individual, mm-hmm. a man who has a, is a political leader and is the head of this entire beastly empire. Right. 
So again, we can see that there's sort of a, a similar near future followed by far future predictions in the Old Testament. And we believe that probably it stands to reason that if that happens a lot in the Old Testament, then Daniel could foreshadow or point ahead in time to a far future event, which is more like the man who is the political leader of this beastly empire, as opposed to just the empire itself. So the beast will receive a deadly wound and it will be healed of it. Again, will... another reference to the similarity with Christ, who mm -hmm. received wounds, died, and rose again, the Antichrist being a non-Christ or a un-Christ, but trying to mimic those things to create credibility or validity to the things that he is saying and doing. Well said. You're right. Uh, and this person will exert authority over the whole world and will demand worship. He will wage war against God's people, and he will prevail against them for a time. That's the good news, for a time. However, the beast's time is short, according to Revelation 13.5 and Daniel 7.25. He will only be permitted absolute authority for 42 months, which is translates to about three and a half years. Now, we have said, and we will say again, a little caveat, that we should note there are some scholars who disagree about whether that's a literal 42 months or whether that stands for something else like a season in contrast with other seasons. Again, we're not trying to get into details to the point that we have to be right about that. And if you're getting too caught up in that, we miss the main point, which is we need to live for Christ so that whenever we are located within those 42 months, we're living for Christ. And there's a lot of theologians who look at that three and a half years as being the second half of the tribulation, which is a seven-year period. So we can see that the mid-tribbers and the pre-tribbers will use that as a marking point. Um, pre-tribbers are going, okay, so we're going to be out of here early, and all of this stuff is going to come down, but it's going to get really bad at the point that uh, three and a half years is done, and then the Antichrist is going to rule for three and a half years. Okay, we don't know that for sure. So that three and a half years, as you said, could be literal in that it will actually be 42 months to the day. You know, we've seen a lot of what God does be lined up specifically to dates or very close to a, a particular date. And other times, as you said, it's a season which indicates an approximation. We believe that it's pretty evident in Revelation that this beast is the Antichrist the one who will oppose God and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. And we also see that the uh, false prophet will be working to persuade the populace to, in fact, worship the Antichrist as God himself. And he's also called the man of lawlessness and the man doomed to destruction. You find that in 2 Thessalonians. And in Daniel's vision, the Antichrist is the little horn that rises from the head of the terrifying beast. We find that in Daniel 7. Mm -hmm. And that's the one we had mentioned earlier on, that we think that may be kind of a nobody. And he just kind of rises up into power from a, a place that most of us might not have recognized because he was not a very known person at that time. That's why the, the little horn. And here's the good news in this crazy apocalyptic scenario. When the Lord returns in judgment, he's going to defeat the beast and he's going to destroy the beast's empire. 
We see that both in Revelation 19 and Daniel 7. The beast will be cast alive into the lake of fire. And that's that place reserved for eternal judgment. It's important for us to recognize that the identity of the individual who will become the beast of Revelation is not yet known. According to 2 Thessalonians 2.7, this man will be revealed only when God removes the restraining influence of the Holy Spirit from the earth. For this biblical reason, we keep urging you, fellow theologians, to remain highly cautious about bloggers and YouTube experts who claim to have figured out the identity of the beast or of the false prophet. And it's interesting when we compare the differing visions of the kingdoms of the world. In Daniel, King Nebuchadnezzar dreams of the kingdoms of the world as a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. We find that in Daniel 2.31. The prophet, Daniel, later sees a vision of the same kingdoms, except he sees them as hideous beasts, and that we find in chapter 7. In John's vision of the final worldly kingdom, the empire is portrayed as a grotesque and misshapen beast. These passages present two different perspectives on the kingdoms that mankind can build. And here's one way to look at those differences. Man sees his creation as imposing monuments and inspiring works of art fashioned of fabulous metals. However, God views these same kingdoms as they are unnatural monsters, and the beast of Revelation will be the worst of all of them. Boy. You know, it goes back to that passage that says that God looks at our works you know, our righteousness as filthy rags, same kind of thing, which is why when we're clothed in his righteousness, he sees us as holy. He sees us in the same manner as he sees his son Jesus, not as the garbage that comes from our own works. No kidding. And that's well said as well, because that really captures the essence of what Jesus was trying to live and teach. So let's do a quick recap, if we can, of the high points from the list of participants that we've been looking at in this season about end times characters. Here are the people slash beings in the end times revelations that we've been looking at. First of all, and this is the most important, if you get this one right, you don't have to worry so much about all the rest. Jesus, he's the one we need to know personally. If we know Jesus, we have no reason to worry about whether or not we know specifically who the beast is, or who the Antichrist is, or who the false prophet is. We might not know that until God pulls away his restraining power and allows people to finally see what's really going on. But we need to know Jesus. He's the main reason that we're teaching about all this stuff. Jesus is the one who makes it possible for us to be with God for eternity, because he is the way in. Then we talk about the unholy trinity, which is kind of the anti-version of the Holy Trinity. The Holy Trinity, of course, being Father, Son, Spirit. The unholy Trinity being Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. Then we looked at angels, and we see that there are actual angels, and there are some people who are called messengers, angelos in Greek. We've got these angels of the churches, which may in fact be human leaders who were charged with sharing some of the information or these letters with different churches around the area that existed at the time of that writing. Then we had this demonic presence that we talked about, and we talked about two witnesses, and we offered three possible educated guesses about who these two witnesses might be. Then we talked about the 144,000, 
And I might say, we're not going into a lot of detail here. We're just telling you what we've been looking at. So if you haven't looked at the previous episodes in season eight, you can go back and catch all these things in more detail because these are the people that we've been talking about. There was the number 144,000. We offered at least a couple of possibilities about what or who this number refers to. We also looked at the nations of Gog and Magog and a particular battle that shows up is going to be big involving the battle of Gog and Magog. We've looked at some of the alliances in a coalition of nations that will unite around ideology that goes against all God stands for, and a couple of the possibilities about which nations might be represented by Gog and Magog, although we don't claim to know definitively. And we have said repeatedly that much of prophetic writing points ahead to future events, and they won't become crystal clear until after the event has happened. So when we see all of a sudden, oh, that's who Gog and Magog represents. I got it now. It's probably going to be after the fact rather than we have predicted it. And we know specifically, which is why we need to do such and such in response or in preparation for that. Biggest preparation is get to know Jesus. And then there's the 24 elders. We talked about these and whether or not they could be human leaders or angels. Rick and I both are leaning toward human leaders for a number of biblical reasons, which we went into in more detail. These 24 leaders, probably representatives of God's church, we think, will be reigning and ruling in God's kingdom after Jesus establishes his reign following his return. And then we looked at the four horsemen. That was just the last episode. And about which thing each of these four horses represent. Many scholars think that the first horseman represents the Antichrist, or a person that wages war against God's people. The second horse of the four represents terrible warfare that breaks out, and this is like worldwide. It may involve the battle of Gog and Magog, as we just mentioned. The third horse likely represents a great famine when basic food and staples, all the things necessary to sustain life in most of the world, become extremely scarce, even though at the same time, great luxuries will still exist, probably for those who receive the benefits of wealth at the expense of all the other people that they say they care about. And then the fourth horse represents death, and it says that Hades is following close behind. This fourth horse will bring further warfare and terrible famines, along with awful plagues, diseases, and attacks even by wild animals a fourth of the world's population will die at that time. Then we also looked at this strange name, the Whore of Babylon. We recognized that, biblically speaking, this mysterious person is closely associated with the Antichrist. This person will have great influence over people and nations and will try to turn their minds toward the Antichrist. And then today we talked about the dragon and the two beasts, and the dragon probably refers to Satan, as we just said, and the two beasts may refer to an end times empire and a coalition of nations or leaders who oppose God and who oppress God's people significantly. A spoiler alert, if you are looking at my book on spiritual gifts, there's a scene at the very end where one of the main characters is confronting the Antichrist and uh, looks over his shoulder and there's a red dragon sitting there just calmly watching the whole process. And what happens next? I'm not going to tell you, but it's uh, it's pretty spectacular. You and I both talked about a couple of movies that help depict some things that we 
might not be able to visualize very well, but they help us get into our imagination and think, oh boy, God's got some great stuff up his mighty sleeve. And when it finally happens, a lot of people are going to be absolutely gobsmacked and they will think, oh my goodness. As you said earlier, the most important thing is not who exactly these people are, not the timeline down to the minute, but looking at these things to be prepared for something that we know is coming because we believe that the prophecies laid out in the Word will happen as they say. So if, for some reason, one of our fellow theologians hasn't entered into that relationship with Christ to miss all of this horrible stuff, this would be a perfect time for them to make that decision. And perhaps you could model a prayer that would help them walk through those concepts that would Give them the opportunity to enter into a relationship with Jesus. Man, I would love to do that. I want to do that as many times as I can between now and the time I get to see him face to face. And one of the things that continually comes to mind as we look into God's word over and over again is that perfect love casts out all fear. We're not trying to become fear mongerers. We don't want to try to scare people into heaven. We're not trying to scare you by saying, oh, these terrible things will be around, and we want you to fear them enough to be able to turn to Christ. That's not the kind of God that we serve, because that's not the kind of God that Jesus demonstrated to us. He demonstrated that he loves us so much that he wants to call us his children. And so perfect love casts out that fear, and it will cast out the fear of these end times events for us to be connected with him, knowing that he loves us so much that he wants us to to be a part of his family, and he would adopt us and give us even a family resemblance because we can start looking more and more like him. So I would say, don't fear and use that as your basis of making this decision. We want love to be the basis of your decision to trust Christ. And it was because he loved us enough to give his own life for us. This is love that a man would lay down his life for his friends. That's what Jesus did for you. And we also know that He's demonstrated that love because even while you were still sinning, he died for you. That's how much he loves you, which is why we want you to turn to him. And you could say a prayer, something like this, that would say, dear Jesus, I recognize now just how much you do love me. And you're trying to help me avoid all this stuff because of your love for me. And therefore, I want to be connected with you as a part of your family. I want to be adopted. I want you to forgive me of my sins, and I want you to just invite me into your family of faith. And by faith, I accept your forgiveness and your free gift of grace and salvation. Thank you for giving it to me. I'm already starting to feel your spirit moving within my own spirit and within my heart and mind. And I'm feeling the weight of sin and guilt and shame lifting off of my shoulders. And I can feel the warmth of your presence coursing through me. And I'm so grateful, Father that you would love me enough to die in my place, to atone for my sins, and to continually put forward yourself and reveal yourself to me in so many ways, putting forward the truth of the good news, the gospel, so that I can respond to that. I'm responding to it right now. I want you to be my Lord and my Savior, and I want to follow you for the rest of my days on earth and on into eternity. So continue to work in my life through your Holy Spirit, Help me to get to know you better through your word as I read the Bible and continue to help me to be encouraged to grow in my faith 
as I hang out with fellow believers who are also doing the same things, because we give each other encouragement and boldness by just hanging out together. It's something for me to recognize that I'm not alone in this process, that you give me a family that I get to be a part of, and I want to be with this family on the journey as I follow your path. Thank you for putting me off of the wide road that leads to destruction and up onto the narrow road, which leads to Christ and eternity. Thank you for that. I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And you know, it's uh, possible that some of our fellow theologians need some boldness and some encouragement to live with that urgency so that they can share their faith in situations that they may not even normally notice. So perhaps we could say a prayer for, for all believers, those of us who've been doing this a while, and those who may have just said the prayer that you modeled a minute ago. I'd be happy to do that too, because Rick and I mention this often, we need these prayers often. We need to be reminded that we need to have that urgency as a motivation and a, a love and a compassion for people because we don't want anybody to have to suffer. We want everybody to come to that saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, and we want that urgency. So we could say a prayer kind of like this. Lord, I recognize that I tend to slip away from that sense of urgency. I get caught up in the mundane. I get caught up in the daily struggles of life, little decisions that become bigger than they ought to be because I've forgotten what my main purpose on earth is. Remind me of what my real purpose is which is to glorify you and to live as a witness to others so that they can see you more clearly. Help me to live with urgency so that in every aspect of my life, I feel like I'm doing something that you've called me to do, namely to reflect your glory. And I pray that that urgency will rub off from other believers who are urgent and that we'll give each other boldness, not so that we can become ugly believers who are always trying to be right, and who are beating other people up with scripture verses and pounding the truth into them, but people who love them and are winsome and compassionate and who serve them lovingly so that they can clearly see Christ in us and even in our actions. And also give us the right words to say so that when we are given chances to speak for you, we will be winsome witnesses sharing the good things that you are doing in our lives on a daily basis letting them know that you make a difference. You have changed us, and you are still changing us. And life is better because Jesus Christ lives within us. I pray that they will see that, that they will get that, and that they will turn to you so that they too can be changed, and that life will be better for them because you, through your Spirit, lives in their heart and mind. You indwell them just like you indwell us. Help us to continue to live with that compassionate urgency to share you with others. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, if that doesn't get people going, I don't know what will. <laughs> <laughs> I feel better having been able to spend time with somebody who shares these truths, biblical truths. And I think that's one of the things that I'm praying for, especially these days. I've so many have fallen away from attending meetings with other people that they would be gaining a sense of like a magnet, drawing them back together again, to hang out with fellow believers who share these things so that we get pumped up with each other. We just get that sense of renewal by being around fellow believers. And I just pray that so many other people will hear this and see that and be prompted by the Spirit to go back into worshiping with one another again, too. That's one of the things that God, I think, has burdened me with 
And I want that burden to be shared in a good way to say, oh, I, you're missing out if you're not hanging out with fellow believers in worship and study of the word and prayer and the one another's. We need to do the one another's with one another. And I think that God helps us to become more energized by hanging out with fellow believers that way. Yeah, it's interesting. It's uh, in a society that seems to be uh, motivated mostly by sporting events. Mm -hmm. Go to a sporting event, you're watching something happen, and the whole arena is moving in unison towards a goal yeah. for one team or the other. It's kind of the same thing when we uh, gather together. You know, we have a purpose of worship and learning, and as you say, reuniting that fellowship between believers, which is so vital for our continued walk. Yeah, it just reminds us of true north. It resets our compass, and it reminds me that I live a purposeful life because God has placed me on this earth for a reason, and that reason is to help reflect him to others. And I may not even be aware that I'm doing so. And I hope that's the case. I hope that I'm so winsome and so obviously his kid that other people will look at me and say, boy, what a family resemblance. That guy's got to be a Christ follower. I hope that will happen without me even being aware of it. That would be the best kind of thing to happen. And we do that best when we're hanging out with other people, reminding ourselves of that and constantly looking into his word because he changes us through that word. And he pumps us back up again. Well, I'm pumped back up. Good. That's good. I hope so. I pray so. And as you, fellow theologian, are walking through this world, don't become so discouraged because we see bad things happening. Now that we understand, that's a part of what we know is going to be happening. Things are going to get worse before they get better. That doesn't mean that we have lost our salt and light. You continue to be salt and light in your sphere of influence, and know that Christ in you is going to make a difference in your world and in your corner of the world. And we hope you'll join us again next time as we continue to pump each other up through the Spirit. Join us again for another episode of Monday, Monday Afternoon, Afternoon Theologians. 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 Theologians.